Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Juan. Every person has a story to tell, and this podcast hopes to give an opportunity for those in the sport world to share their unique story. Each week, I interview a new guest to come on the show. We talk about how they got to where they are in the sport world, what their daily life looks like, some misconceptions people have about their role, and we end with a fun rapid-fire segment to close the episode. If that sounds like something for you, Please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. New episodes will be coming out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Julia Peden Designs. Need a design project done? Look no further than Julia Peden. She is a freelance multimedia designer who helps bring your ideas to life. She specializes in developing unique brands and logos for your business to stand out from the pack. The one and only sports logo was created by Julia, and I absolutely love it. She helped me establish a brand and has provided ongoing professional advice for me to keep everything looking fresh and consistent. You can check out her projects and other works at juliapeden.com. That's J-U-L-I-A-P-E-D-N.com. Now with all that done, let's go. Welcome to episode four of the podcast. Today's guest is Derek Marquez. Derek is a professional baseball agent and started his own agency, Lake Ridge Sports Management, in 2018. In last year's Major League Baseball draft, Lakeridge represented 65 players professionally and advised 30. He emphasizes a player-first approach towards being a baseball agent, creating strong relationships with each of his players. Prior to this, Derek hosted the Canusa Sports Desk podcast for five years, where athletes would come on and talk about hot topics in sports other than their own. He also had a prior career in web development. Here is my interview with Derek Marquez. Derek, thank you for coming on the show today. I know you live a busy schedule as an agent, so I do appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. And I enjoy hearing your story when you spoke to my class earlier this fall. So I'm excited to, to have that shared on a bigger platform here. So can you tell the audience how you got to where you are today as a baseball agent, switching careers and all that went into that? Well, yeah, so it's a quite a unique uh, journey I had where, you know, I started based on back in 20, 2008, I think it was, uh, tweeting, and then I was asked to start my own podcast, did that for five years, and then got connected with an agent in Chicago, and he asked me if I was interested in becoming an agent. We built an built a relationship, so he had to kind of just ask me out of the blue, and uh, he brought me on board to kind of grow his hockey department being Canadian, but kind of doing what I did with uh, the podcast. I kind of naturally grew through baseball. And then in 2018, started my own company with Lakers Sports Management. When we first started, I still had uh, some football and some baseball and hockey players. Decided, you know, let's just do one sport instead of a multi-sport and be good at one sport. And I decided baseball as that was the sport we were most advanced in with our clients. And in terms of baseball, in your background, did you have a background in baseball at all as a child or as a teenager? So baseball was the first sport that I discovered on my own. So coming from a European background, soccer was introduced to me, but baseball was the first sport that I discovered on my own, first sport that I played, first organized sport that I played. Even when I did my, my podcast, my co-host was a professional baseball player. So baseball kept on reoccurring in my life. So I took that as a sign when I had to decide what sport to take on. And with your podcast, how did that experience working with some pro athletes get you prepared to be an agent? 
got me to see that players are normal people, got me very comfortable talking to athletes. It's a very small world where there's still even people in, you know, front office staff that I met back then through the podcast that I'm still interacting with today or running into them again today. Uh, it's a funny thing, you know, just a few months ago, I was talking to uh, Turner Spaljeric, Paul Spaljeric's son. Well, Paul Spaljeric was a player that I had on my podcast as a guest. So it was kind of like going full circle where I had the father as a guest and now I'm talking to the son to recruit him as a draft advisor. And did any of those players give you tips in terms of you wanting to become a baseball agent? Did they give you any advice at all? Oh, I did. So uh, before I got into the industry, I reached out to players that I was very comfortable with in multiple sports. So I remember like Devin Travis of the Blue Jays, Lorenzo Alexander of uh, the Buffalo Bills, Carlo Koliakovo of the Leafs. And then there's some in the NBA asked as well. And I asked them all, what was something you didn't like about an agent, your agent you've had in the past? Every single one of them said lack of communication. So I felt that was the one thing I needed to focus on to be successful because clearly I heard these four players that actually made it and they're all saying the same thing. And I would say 99% of the time when I'm talking to a player that wants to change representation, that is the reason. In terms of your journey from uh, your past career into being an agent, can you walk us through the process of deciding to leave your old career and pursuing something completely different? So when I was doing the podcast, I just kind of felt like I, it's run its course. And I don't know if anyone else has kind of felt that where it's like, hey, where's this going to go? you know, ESPN, TSN, Sportsnet, these, no one was calling me for it. I felt I had a very unique product, but it was like, okay, after five years, you know, you just can't keep on running into the wall expecting something different. I'm a believer that everything happens for a reason. So I felt, you know, taking this on and this is the journey of the podcast. That was the end of the road. And I had to kind of switch lanes and start my new journey on this new road, on this new highway. After you spoke with that agent in Chicago, how did that process start in terms of getting the documents and the different things you need to be an agent? So, yeah, when he told me, I kind of took some time to kind of process it where, you know, what's what's he doing? Is he trying to scam me? Like just that kind of first questions, because I had never actually met him in person. I've talked to him many times online and, you know, on the phone. And we had a good relationship that way. But like I wanted to make sure and protect myself. And, you know, I kind of asked him, you know, like what education requirements, because you always have this preconception that you need to be a lawyer, have a law degree. And he said, no, like every every sport is different. Right. So where in the NHL, all you need to do is represent a player that had been drafted into the NHL or have a player in the NHL to be a certified NHL agent in the NFL. It's an exam. Major League Baseball, it's an exam. So every sport was different. CFL is like an online exam. So, you know, just knowing that out and then it just happened very quickly. Within three weeks, I was in New York writing my uh, MLB certification exam. So it just seems like August of 20, 2017, 2016, you know, a, a whirlwind. So then after this process happens, you get certified. Can you walk us through then how do you secure that first player, that first deal? Well, so you're not actually certified just by base um, by passing the exam. Major League Baseball has a final step where you need to represent a player on the 40-man roster within three years of passing the exam. But by that point, I already had players. So I didn't start pursuing by that point. I needed that certification. I needed that kind of pass that, that exam and kind of have that at that step to negotiate a deal for, with the Tampa Bay Rays for a player that the agency represented. 
So that was kind of the purpose why I was being fast tracked because we had a player that was up for free agency and that I'd found a deal with uh, with the Rays. And having that kind of, even though I wasn't officially certified, I needed to at least pass the exam to have the conversation with major league teams on a player's behalf. Yeah, Derek, thank you for sharing that clarification because I'm sure many people have different views of what it is to be an agent. So I appreciate that. And are there certain people that you like to shout out in terms of your journey to get to where you are? Are there certain people that played a really pivotal role into where you are today? I would probably say anybody who picks up the phone when I'm asking them questions, be it from family members to friends. That's the one thing when you're running a company by yourself, you need people to jump ideas off of and you don't have many or you need someone to vent to. But now with the clientele base that I have, a lot of times I use my players. Um, I use my players as sounding boards to kind of get their feedback and kind of and also growing our relationship um, in the meantime. And as I mentioned in the bio earlier, uh, you do represent a lot of different players uh, in different levels as well. So can you talk about how you've decided to focus on a certain type of player and a certain type of level as an agent? So I look at my clientele base as a major league organization. So I want five to 10 players at every level of minor league baseball or college or high school. So they're feeding itself. You don't want just triple A guys because eventually those triple A guys will fall off and then you have no one to refill your system, right? So I treat my clientele base as, you know, an organization the same way. Now I'm not dealing with 25 men roster at every level. I'm dealing at five to 10 and realistically how minor league baseball works. It's more of a pyramid where you're going to have more rookie ball guys than high A and you have more triple A, more high A guys than triple A. So it's kind of doesn't, you don't have the same 10 move up, but you're going to have pick up other players along the way. Players are going to retire. Players are going to get released. So there's different points, but also too, with the players that we work with um, as advisors, right? So if they're a high school player, to know that, you know, you're still with them and still work with them and have them already in our pipeline in the draft for two and three years down the road. And being a Canadian yourself, do you think that helps you or hinders your ability to talk with Canadian players as well as foreign talent from overseas? So the funny thing is I get asked that question. I just asked that question probably a couple of days ago from a parent. If, uh, if I find that it hinders me being a Canadian, I've never really come across. It's been a barrier. Some players, most of my players are American. I guess they find it's cool that they're working with a real life Canadian. And it's it's weird that for me, it's a lot easier for me to interact and recruit an American baseball player over a Canadian baseball player. I think Canadian baseball players are a lot more reserved. They're a lot more trusting in their coaches and the coach is a lot more protective of them. Um, the one thing that I kind of need to point out to the coaches of these, you know, elite pro baseball programs is, you know, yes, you're going to work with a player to get him into a Michigan or an Oklahoma, but are you going to be there during his freshman and sophomore and junior year where we would, right? So it's all about setting the player up to succeed. And, you know, sometimes a lot of these, you know, a lot of these coaches play professional baseball, right? And they're just going based on what their advisor or what their agent did for them, right? Where we're like, no, we take a little bit of the next step further. So, you know, even if a player doesn't get drafted, making sure he's going to the best D1 program there where he can succeed or he's not going to go to a school where chances are you're not going to play and you're going to want to transfer out. So helping the family make that decision on what is the right school. And in Canada, it's a lot different. Every parent knows how to get a player drafted into the NHL. 
but no one really knows the proper process or how it works with minor league baseball with, you know, so many rounds and being drafted at high school or college or junior college. Yeah, you touched on an interesting point about the draft. I know a lot of people, when they see, for example, the NBA draft, it's two rounds, NFL being seven rounds. So how do people deal with the fact that the MLB draft is so large? Does that mean that a lot of players don't end up making it that much further, or how does that work? So in a typical year, so in 2019, like this year, because of COVID, it's a lot different. uh, But in a typical year, so 2019, it is a 40-round draft. Now, because players can be drafted out of high school or players still have eligibility if they don't sign as a junior or a sophomore if they're 21, they can go back. So in a typical year, if a team makes 40 picks, they only sign probably 20 to 25 players. So you're not signing every player you draft because there's high school players. If there's a high school player drafted in the 30th round and they have a scholarship for Arkansas, they're going to go to Arkansas for three years and then attempt to get, get redrafted. Um, you know, after three years of education. So even though it sounds, you know, like a lot when it's 40, but they're not bringing in 40 players every year into their system. You mentioned earlier about how you have your own agency now. So how did you decide to to split off from what you were doing before with the previous agency? So it was always kind of something that as as I was starting to see that I can be successful in this line of work. And my biggest concern was the lack of trust of this person that I still had never actually met. But him being in Chicago, me being in Toronto and Canada, am I going to eventually run into problems where I risk losing all these players that I pretty much recruited for this other agency? So when other things started to happen at the other agency, I decided it was a good time for me to part ways. And, you know, I brought the players that I recruited in. So I didn't take any of the players that were already existing with that agency. I kind of told them, you know, and I always made sure that I never signed a non-disclosure. So any client that I was able to bring in, I was able to take with me because I always had that mindset and idea that I would possibly one day, you know, start my own agency. I didn't know when. But you kind of have that moment where it's like, okay, this is now the time. Last question of this segment here. What's some advice you would give for someone who wants to be an agent themselves? Uh, The advice I would give them is probably um, if there's a lot of money to be made in this line of work. But if that is the reason why you're getting into it, you're getting into it for the wrong reasons. You know, for me, helping the player, watching them succeed, helping them succeed, helping them be part of their life to grow financially and professionally is a huge part. And that's kind of probably the mindset of baseball because there's a lot of years of minor league baseball. So it is a long grind. It's a sport. It's a marathon, um, not a sprint. But if you were, you know, in basketball or, you know, hockey, where it's a lot shorter time between being drafted to going pro, Um, or the NFL, where they don't really have a minor league system, it's probably a different mindset. But in the mindset for baseball, I have to have the mindset that, you know, what I say is, you know, I I farm baseball players, like, you know, I plant the seeds, and the crop grows, and some are going to grow, some aren't. So that's the mentality you have to have, but it's about helping them get to the next level, right? So when we say the next level, it's not the pros, or it's not the major league, it's from high A to double A to triple A to the majors. Sounds good. And that segues well into our second segment, day to day life. So can you walk the audience through what a, what your day-to-day life looks like as a baseball agent during the season, uh, before the draft, and then off-season as well? It's There's something to do at all times. Um, you know, I have a pretty much a calendar of 12 months, and every month there's a different focus. The only real consistent is being available for your player. 
whatever that may be. So there's not really set in stone where a normal day is because the draft is in June. So you're really ramping up towards the draft. If there was minor league play, uh, minor league baseball, you'd be you know overlooking how your players are doing. If any of them get injured or released, trying to find them new jobs. So, and those things are always, you can't expect them or plan them, right? So you never know when a player is going to call you and say, I just got released. So, and it's kind of at that point where whenever a player calls you, you don't know if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. And in terms of players contacting you, how do you set boundaries for your own personal life in terms of balancing your own social life, personal life, and then your professional life as well? What, what, what do you mean boundaries? <laughs> um, I'm pretty much available to my player at any time. So it's just kind of that if they feel they need me, I don't want them to feel like they're a second fiddle. My family, my friends know that my phone's always with me. If I have to leave, you know, the dinner table, I remember a couple of years ago, it was my own birthday. I had to leave a dinner table to make a phone call because a player just got released by the Cardinals, right? So um, it, it's in today's technology, it's a lot different and a lot easier, right? My cell phone's with me at all times. Everyone's cell phone is always with you. So it's very easy to kind of still be at a family gathering or going out with friends, but still feel like you're there for your players because you can quickly text them. And even a lot of times outside of like negotiations and things like that, like at that situation at that birthday, a lot of times it's through text, right? They don't even call often, right? So it's text messaging and you can do that and multitask quite easily and still be social. For sure. And I know you talk a lot about this player first approach. So can you discuss what that actually means in terms of your philosophy of being an agent? Uh, player for, for a first approach for us is just definitely be there for the player, um, you know, communicate with the player, do what's best for the player. And when I talk to players and parents, you know, especially with younger players in high school, you almost get that feeling where you, the player ends up being a younger brother or a child sometimes, right? Where you want to overlook for them, right? So you want that comfort level with them too, where, you know, I have players call me about anything and everything when they're bored, if, you know, if they're twitching, if they're on Instagram Live, you know, there's constantly, they feel like I'm a part of life and that's the relationship that I want with players. I don't want it just to be professional. I want it to be a casual comfortable and kind of part of the family thing um you know even though i'm up here in canada and they don't know where the heck i am in canada i could be right beside saskatchewan for all they know and and i'm always available to them so to me that's the player first where that's the top priority anyone who comes into lakers force management we emphasize it's all about communication it's all about the player um, and not necessarily just communication with the player but the communication with the team that benefits the player in terms of speaking to teams how does the draft process work for you as an agent, I'm just genuinely interested. You see a lot of movies about the draft and things like that or money ball. So what does the draft actually look like for an agent? So um, with NCAA, we're just considered advisors um, in that aspect. And, you know, for it's there's a lot of pre-work that gets done going up to the draft where it's, you know, getting getting the information. There's so many baseball players getting that information to the teams Teams are working with the players to get their answers. And then as we get closer, trying to find out, you know, which teams are interested. Um, and then they want to know how much, you know, is a player looking to sign? Is he looking? He said a lot of these players, you know, there's a player that goes to Yale and he's like, well, is he going to take a corporate job on Wall Street or is he going to play minor league baseball for a fraction of what he would make? Right. So they're going to ask, you know, what is the player signability? How much money they're looking for? Is there a lot of pre-work? And even um, a lot of times with mostly with college players when a player gets picked 
um, the team will call me and we will try to we will negotiate the signing bonus and we will negotiate the education part of the deal before the pick gets made. So and then what I do, I still go back to the player and say, this team wants to draft you. This is how much they're offering. This is how much education they want. Are you okay with that? And then going back to, you know, the team saying everything's okay. And, and then they get pretty much get selected at the next pick. And you've probably seen it recently at the NFL draft, right? Where by the time the name actually gets selected, the player already knows he's he's going there, right? So they're not finding out on ESPN. They're not finding out when we find out. They already, we already know picks before, you know, it's like pretty much the next time the Padres make their pick, we're going to go. And in terms of recruiting these players, how does that work? You have an agency up here in Canada. As you mentioned, you have a lot of NCAA players. So how does the recruiting work? Is it a lot of personal recruiting? Uh, do you go and seek out players? How does that work? Uh, so I don't do a lot of in-person uh, recruiting because my players are literally, literally all over the United States and Canada. I rely on independent scouting services. So they kind of guide me into what type of player or which players I should potentially work with. Um, the last thing I want to do is work with a player that doesn't have the skill set to get drafted because then they feel that just because they're working with an advisor that it's a realistic possibility. And to me, it's, you know, an, an advisor cannot get a player drafted. You still need that skill set to be in the conversation, right? The advisor is there to help the player and the family how to utilize the draft and how to get the most out of the draft instead of the player that's just kind of going into the mentality of whatever happens, happens. You know, the kind of the comparison that I tell players and family, and I probably said it a lot recently, is working with an advisor is like working with a map. So if you have two or three people trying to get somewhere, you have person one who has the map, who's working with the advisor, he's going to get there a lot quicker than person two that is still going to get there, but he's getting there without the map. And they have person three who doesn't have the skill set. He has a map, but he doesn't have his driver's license. So even with the map, even with the advisor, if he doesn't have the skill set, he's still not going to get there. And how does that blend together in terms of you're an agent, but in some ways you play a little bit of the role of scout in terms of trying to figure out what players you want to take on. So how do you blend those two things together? You know, it's it's hard at first. It's a learning curve like anything. I can't say, you know, my first draft, I was picking the best players to get drafted. I think my personal goal is every draft, get better and better talent to work with and get a better eye of what we're looking for and do a lot of focus on, you know, not only the independent scouting services, but what schools they're going to. So rely on what other, what signs other teams are, are kind of giving you, right? So if I'm working with a player, or if I see a player that was drafted by, LSU or not drafted sorry he's committed to LSU right and I have another player committed to Stenson right so it's like okay well realistically the LSU player is probably better because that's why LSU recruited him right so you're going to go based on these other mindsets of case you know these people know what they're talking about so they've seen the player so it's not to say the Stenson player won't get drafted um I probably still would work with this Stenson player because still a D1 program over like a D2 but my first goal is to try and get, and even like anything, like I rank my, my prospects, you know, with, you know, a five-star recruit or a three-star recruit or four-star recruit to kind of say based on, are they playing at a power five school? Or are they playing at a Mac or a WAC, which is pretty much still get players drafted, but a lot lower. And in terms of the players that you get, do you get a lot of referrals from like teammates, let's say in the NCAA, will one guy who goes to LSU then tell their other LSU buddy to sign with you kind of thing? 
So I do get a lot of that, but what I try and avoid doing is having the player tell me, oh, my buddy's really good, can you represent him? Because it's the chances are a lot of times that player doesn't have the skill set to actually get drafted. It's different if they're in pro ball. If, if, if I have a player in the Royal system, he says, my buddy in the also in the Royal system is looking for somebody, yeah, we'll take him on because he's already in affiliated ball. But in regards to back at college you know a lot of times is that person doesn't have the ability sometimes it doesn't right like last year we had a player that did that and we got both players drafted you know it's a lot i rather use it where if i see a player that i'm interested in and he went to lsu i will reach out to my lsu player and say do you know this guy or do you have contacts still at the school they can get me this number it's i find it's a lot easier to recruit from familiarity than um than just out of the blue and i'm a stranger and it sounds like you also have to do a lot of due diligence as an agent as well, making sure you're grabbing the right players. And can you speak a little bit to the different systems that there are in minor league baseball for those who maybe don't know anything about the minor league system? Could you give maybe like a one minute quick walkthrough of what the minor league system looks like? There's a lot of talk right now you're hearing of Major League Baseball looking to cut the minor league system. So as of currently, the minor league system goes rookie ball, advanced rookie ball, Short, short season, A, A ball, and then double A, triple A. Um, what Major League Baseball is trying to do is cut out the rookie ball advance and short season A. Their proposal for 2021 is rookie ball, which would be based at the facilities in Arizona or Florida, and then go right into A ball and double A, triple A, and high A. So eliminating the half season. What half season baseball means is the players actually stay back in Arizona and and Florida at spring training for what they call extended spring training. So pretty much doing the same drills and the dead of heat for two or three months, not being paid until short season starts, which is typically in around mid-June. So that is the level that they're trying to eliminate from minor league baseball. And in terms of the players in those lower systems, for example, Class A, as you mentioned, or short season, are those mostly young 20-year-olds? Or are there some people that have been there for a few years and still trying to work their way up? Or how does that work? Uh, yeah, you're going to find players that possibly they had Tommy John or possibly they had an injury and, you know, they're kind of struggling or they're, you know, they were a senior sign. So you're a senior sign. So you're possibly 24, a senior sign being a player that is drafted as a senior in university. Right. And he could have been there for four or five years. So sometimes these players in university, I'm surprised how old they are. So getting into, you know, they're getting into minor league baseball when their peers are already in the majors. Kind of the joke that someone told me once is a player in baseball is entering his rookie year when an NHL player is retiring at the same age. For some, it could be that long, right? So that Mm -hmm. sounds like uh, an interesting thing there. So that sounds good. And in terms of the person who's in rookie ball, for example, are they working another job as well? Or is this a full-time gig? So yeah, for for baseball, you're pretty much your full-time baseball player. You wake up, um, you go to the ballpark, you start preparing for the game at 7, or you're riding a bus to the place. So you are a professional baseball player from the months of February till September. And then the off season, especially if you're younger, you're either going back to school and finishing your degree or you're working a winter job. What typical university students would work as summer jobs, trying to get extra money for when they play minor league baseball during the season. And so people are, you know, think, oh, you're a professional baseball player. You make a lot of money. Um, I actually just have these right here. So just give you an idea of how little these players will get paid. So this year, in rookie ball, 
a rookie ball player will bring home $1,100 a month, right? So they are getting a raise next year. So they're going to be bumped up to $1,600 a month, which is a little better, right? Same thing, like a double A player, you're bringing home $1,400 a month, $1,400. That is not a lot of money. So again, next year, their their raise is going up to $1,000. So next, they're starting to get in the better place. But what I was kind of joking, like Walmart readers are getting paid more than these minor league baseball players. Right. And um, and the reason for that is there is an act in the United States where typically, you know, they're kind of con- only considered working during the hours of the game. So even though they're there for 12 hours, the game's only three to four. And on top of that, they're still paying rent. Right. They're still paying housing. Um, if a player gets called up, sometimes you're playing double rent. You're paying rent back from where you left if another player hasn't taken your spot because you're renting with two or three other teammates and you want to leave them hanging up uh, hanging dry and you're paying rent at the higher level until you know so you find a place so money is definitely not the reason why you play minor league baseball and i did read that reference in one of the articles i read before this uh before this episode so it's funny that you still use that same uh, reference there at walmart yeah <laughs> it's a it's a good reference because we sometimes think it's glamorous to be a minor league baseball player because we see them, the story of them making the majors, but that's certainly not the case for a lot of them. No, it's, uh, you know, what I always say is I'd be naive to think that every player I work with is going to make the majors. Uh, my promise to them or my promise to myself is to get them as far as their talent can take them, right? So if they all have talent that peaks out at double A, then that's the best we can do. I can't, you know, I can't make them a triple A player, but as long as I can get them to wherever their talent achieves and they don't flare out at A ball. So yeah, just like even going back, like even players and friends of the players, you know, it's like, oh, you're a professional baseball player for the Yankees. You know, they make a lot of money. You know, you can pick up the tab. And he's like, you know, I'm reading at uh, McDonald's and stuff. And that's the funny thing is all these minor players, they don't eat healthy because they can't afford to, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like they're eating, you know, fast food because that's what their budget allows. Yeah, I was going to ask about expenses. What do the teams and the minor league organizations cover for those guys? Pretty much food at the ballpark, post-game meals, per diem money, went on the road for meal money. So in regards to eating, you're not really much buying much food because you wake up, you go right to the ballpark, and you'll pretty much eat the team's food if you have to. So you're pretty much your fridge is going to be empty um, at home, just pretty much on your off day. And that's pretty much the only money you really have to do. But equipment-wise, they don't offer, and that was my biggest surprise is how little equipment-wise that uh, the team provides. So, you know, being familiar with the OHL, I know OHL teams provide sticks and skates from, you know, sponsorship deals with Bauer or CCM. There, you know, if you're a catcher, possibly the team will provide you your first catching gear um, outfit once you get drafted. But cleats, bats, gloves, these are all things that the players got to buy on their own. Fortunately, with wood bats, bat could break on the first swing. And these things aren't cheap. You know, they're looking at $100 per bat. So for a player that doesn't make a lot of money, he's uh, he's running the risk every time he goes to the bat that he's going to lose a big chunk of his paycheck. And it sounds like it definitely adds up. And you hear $1,400 a month, that definitely can add up with the bats and the equipment and all that. In terms of if a player is struggling, do you advise them to get additional sessions or coaching? Or how does that work? Because you're not their coach, you're their agent. So how does that work in terms of getting them better if they're in a slump, let's say? So I kind of try and look at the analytics if I can find anything to help them out. 
I do recommend certain things like there's pitching academies out there that can help in the off season. So I can make suggestions or they'll say, do you know anybody or do this or do that? So it's a lot of, uh, you need the feedback from the player to do, to, to help in that aspect. But a lot of times, you know, I, whatever you try and do, you find analytically, you know, if I can watch a game online, I can see something, maybe I can point it out. Um, again, we're watching off. If anyone's, if anyone has ever watched a minor league baseball game or a college baseball game online, it is terrible. It is, you're pretty much watching it off an iPhone, off of, you know, the furthest part of the ballpark. Right? Like it's I, by I can't wait till these cameramen to find out where the zoom button is because <laughs> it's definitely not uh, TSN or Sportsnet caliber. No, I've been to a Buffalo Bisons game myself, so I, I know the smallness of the stadium as well. We're going to move to segment three here, Derek. What are some misconceptions about being an agent? I am sure you get a lot of questions and a lot of comments about being an agent, how you must own you know, a few cars and a few mansions because you're an agent. They see Scott Boris, and that's what they think of. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. Um, I can't do an interview without uh, Scott's name coming up. Sometimes I wonder if, if my name comes up in his interviews as much as his name comes up on mine. Yeah, so we already touched on one misconception with being a being an agent and needing to be a lawyer. Um, the misconception a lot of times with uh, with the players themselves is you know agents are going to buy you whatever you want, um, which is you know it's I don't know since when agent translated into sugar daddy. Um, so that is something that I kind of set you know the expectation out early where we are not in a position to just buy players whatever they want. Um, we have other avenues where they can get discounts or do they do get free product, but it's not coming out of our our pocket. Yeah, like it's you'd be surprised the type of questions certain players that I've been talking to. Then I don't represent them, but I've been asked. I've been asked. I had a minor league player once asked me if I would pay him thirty thousand dollars to represent him. I'm like, that's not really how it works. <laughs> um, I've had other players that ask me if I can get them concert tickets. I'm like, well. Clearly, he must have thought he was talking to Rock Nation because I'm not Jay-Z and I'm not married to Beyonce. So I don't know why he would think I'd be able to get him concert tickets. So and those are to me, those are signs of the type of player that I do not want to work with. Um, I find that they are not necessarily in it for the help that we provide. Um, They were just in it with their handout, seeing what they can get out of, you know, the agent. And the agent isn't necessarily supposed to, you know buy players whatever they want unfortunately there are younger agents that try and get into the game thinking that's what they have to do and they don't succeed it's a lot different when you know players you know agents like scott who make more money than you can think of you know his his expense budget is a little bigger than mine right so yeah he can buy a player a scooter once he gets drafted right as but it's just um you know we all can't play with that mindset because we don't have the funds that he has you mentioned something really interesting about the certain player that you want. So could you be able to quickly define what are some traits, character traits that you would look for in a player that you want to take on? Um, one who's hardworking, one who, and what I want is, you know, going back to Scott, is I don't want that player that once he makes it to the majors will leave Derek for Scott, right? So I want a player that's going to appreciate our relationship that once he gets there and, you know, Scott or a different bigger agency reaches out to them and tries to lure them, he's going to say, thanks, but, you know, Derek was there from the start and he was there when you guys weren't calling me, right? Because I wasn't a first round pick. So I'm going to stay with him because I've been with him for seven, eight years. Because that's sometimes how long you are with a player before they make it to the majors, especially if you work with them from college. And in terms of if your players gets released or in a slump or they don't get drafted, how do you deal with that sort of negativity or negative circumstance uh, as an agent? 
So there's multiple questions there. So in regards with the slump, it's kind of trying to keep them positive, trying to change their mindset is already in a negative place. You don't want to say, boy, you're brutal, right? It's like, are you ever going to not strike out? And there's sometimes where I joke around at it, where, you know, there's if sometimes, you know, a player's batting average or I remember like a player's ERA was like 135. And I kind of told him like, well, you know, there's nowhere to go but low it down. Right, like you get a couple outs and you're gonna go be fine, right? Because it's just you know it's not normal, but you have to kind of play, especially know what kind of relationship you have with that player. In regards to being released, it's we're in the mindset of you know trying to get them the understanding of what the expectation is. A lot of times with younger players, they feel just because they're gonna get released, another organization is gonna pick them up. At the lower levels, like I said, all these organizations have you're looking at 250 minor league players. So if you're a 30th round pick getting released they have their own 30th round picks that they're trying to figure out what to do so you may have to take the avenue of going to indie ball independent baseball and getting picked up from there into an affiliate right and i get players like five to ten players a year picked up via that route mostly younger players now if you're a player that's been in double a and a lot more teams have seen you um, then there's a more likely chance of you getting picked up to a different organization but a lot of times these younger players are like oh you know who's who's going to pick me up it's like well you know, you've only been around for a year or two. And a lot of times what I try to get them to understand is just because you played against the Yankees, they weren't really watching you, right? They're watching their own players, right? They're scouting their own players. So they don't really notice how well the other team's 30th rounder is doing. And how do all these organizations keep track of all these ball players throughout all the systems? You're scouting, as you mentioned, your own, and then you're maybe potentially trying to pick up some others. So how do organizations keep track of all that? They just have scouts everywhere, right? They have independent scouts. They have, and it's looking at, even though it seems like a lot when you look at the big picture, right? It's taking it level by level, right? So let's just focus on what we have here at high A and what's the talent that could feed into double A, right? Or what's the talent we have here in advanced rookie ball, right? And so you can't really look and put all the players in one pot, You kind of really need separate pots and move them around. What I always say is minor league baseball is often like grade school, right? You don't want to spend the same, you know, you don't want to spend two years at the same grade. So your goal is to constantly go up one year at a time and you don't want to repeat a level. You just like, you wouldn't want to repeat grade four. That's actually a really good analogy. And have you ever used that with your players? Like, do they hear that? Probably. I'm, I'm full of analogies, so sometimes I don't realize what I say, what comes out of my mouth. But yeah, so that's that's, that's our main goal, because sometimes you'll get players like, oh, you know, I want to go to double A, and they're, they're pretty much saying they want to jump up three levels in one year. It's not to say it's not realistic, but I kind of more of like, okay, let's have a realistic goal, where even if you go up one level, right, you're doing well. Especially if there's at one point in your career, you can make a double jump, right? Because now you are already ahead right? You're already a grade ahead of everybody else, right? If you can skip a grade or be at a grade for a very short period of time, you're doing well. You don't really need to be greedy and go up two or three at a time. Is there anything players can do besides just playing well to separate themselves? I know, for example, with the Blue Jays, everyone knows about Vladdy Jr., but that's because of his name, his dad, and and sort of some of the highlights we've seen in his minor league days. But is there any other way for players to separate themselves? Perform. You have to perform. You have to perform any opportunity you have. And what I always say is players that were drafted in the first round and players that I've drafted in the 40th round, everyone has the same opportunity to get to the majors. The difference is the one in the first round has a lot longer leash, has more opportunity to fail. And the one in the 40th round is playing like every day is his last. 
So, and that's the mindset you have to have if you're a lower round pick where, you know, you have to outshine and, you know, if you have an opportunity to play against that first round pick and you can strike them out if you're a pitcher, right, that's going to vote really well with you, right? It's not only how well you do, but how well are you doing against other players that are touted? So sometimes it's not bad to piggyback off the reputation on a different player if you can embarrass them. Something you mentioned earlier was the difference between Canadian and American high school players. So what's the difference in terms of just the high school system and how that relates to you talking to them as an agent? I guess they're a lot more reserved um, in Canada, more protected, more unwilling to work with um, with people, especially, you know, I say, well, I'm Canadian, I, you know, I'm here to help, but part of the biggest misconception is agents and advisors are slimy, they're snarling they're out there for themselves. So trying to beat that misconception is the first thing you have to do. Um, where I find Americans are a lot more open because they know more people that work with advisors. So it's more of a common thing. Where in Canada, they're like, well, my buddy who plays for the Sarnia Sting, he doesn't have an advisor. Well, OHL players don't have advisors, right? So it's more of an unknown thing where it's like, who are you? You're just looking for money or this or that, where they don't realize the actual help we can help them, especially the help we can provide Canadian families with letting their kid go to a school where they could succeed, right? A parent who doesn't know could send their kid to a D2 junior college thinking that they're going to make the majors, but realizing by making that one decision, you've actually taken a step back, right? Even though you've played for the Toronto Mets or Ontario Blue Jays, elite baseball programs in Ontario, by making that one small decision, you've actually pretty much could have been played for the Whippy Chiefs. So it sounds like with a lot of the Canadian families, it's a lot of just giving information, potential misinformation Mm -hmm. that they see online or just from other parents that they've heard. Yeah, so the baseball community that I'm quickly quickly noticing is very small. Um, just as I said, by people I'm interacting, crossing paths from my podcast days, um, if the baseball community is small, the baseball community in Canada is minuscule. So it is so tiny because, yeah, like you don't really see as much baseball being played, you know, out there as, you know, soccer or any other sports. So if you're playing at those elite levels and it's not like junior hockey, certainly minor hockey where you have 18 levels of, you know, house league rep, this and that, and they all travel. Baseball is not, the, that's not the case for baseball, right? If you're playing with an elite program like the Ontario Blue Jays or the Toronto Mets, um, you know, it's pretty much you're with the parents that you see every week, and that's pretty much your only avenue to find out information. And my last question in this section, what do you see in terms of the future of Canadian baseball? I think Canadian baseball will go as far as the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, I think, you know, growing up the age that I am, baseball was huge back in the early 90s and late 80s when the Blue Jays were winning. You saw a big jump a few years ago when the Blue Jays finally made it back into the playoffs. I think as long as the Blue Jays can still play competitive, good baseball, more and more young people will want to play it. Um, that's the reason why you're going to see a big jump in basketball, right? Like you go in my neighborhood, every three houses have a basketball net because of the Raptors. The Raptors were the New York Knicks in a terrible you know, <laughs> team that don't really win. Those basketball nets wouldn't be up, right? So I think that's the case is as long as the team wins, there's going to be interest and people are going to want to be Jose Batista or Josh Donaldson or Edwin Acrancion when they're out there. But if the team is, you know, no one really said, you know, I want to be Cesar Asturis back in, you know, the early 2000s when the Blue Jays weren't winning. No offense to Cesar Asturis. He was a good baseball player. But uh, definitely, I remember just the time of the playoffs. I remember going to ALDS when they first made it in the atmosphere and people were hungering for that playoff baseball. But then they've struggled the last couple of years. 
Hopefully they're going to be on the rebound now, but you can definitely see the impact of that. We look at that with Vince Carter and all these Canadian basketball players now playing in the States, and we see how one generational player can impact the rest. We're going to move to segment four here, rapid fire. Didn't prep you for this, so we'll see how it goes, Derek. Name your top three sports teams and athletes of all time. All right, top three sports teams. Professional or can it be anything? Anything, anything. It could be the, yeah, it could be whatever. (laughs) Being a huge junior hockey fan, my number one has to be the Oscar Generals. Being loyal to where I'm from, as you can probably see, uh, Florida State Seminoles are probably up there. And I would have to say, I don't know, the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, I have to put a baseball team in there. I try to have to be as biased as possible being in my line of work. But, you know, the Blue Jays, uh, hockey, uh, sorry, uh, athletes of all time. Cristiano Ronaldo, definitely number one, being Portuguese. Uh, John Tavares, being Portuguese and being a former Astro General. And, oh, my number three, that would be a tough one. I'll go football and I'll say Jim Kelly. There you go, former Buffalo Bill quarterback. Oh, actually, no, sorry, Jim Kelly just got bumped. Michael Jordan. After watching, you know, as, as I grew up in the 90s, I'm sorry, 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 Jim. Uh, Michael Jordan just jumped you on that one. Oh, man. Well, deservedly so. I'm sure you've seen the documentary. I've yet to watch it all. I'm going to try to binge watch it all at once, I think. Yeah, I'm watching it through ESPN, so unfortunately I only got the two hours uh, a week. Oh, okay. You can't binge it then. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, number two here. This will be a tough one based on the teams you just mentioned. What's your favorite sports memory of all time as a fan? Oh, there's so many. Yeah, um, I knew it would be a tough one. <laughs> yeah, like I said, well, I was lucky enough to be in Quebec City in 2015 in the Austin Memorial Cup. Um, I had the opportunity to be in Brazil in 2014 at the World wow. Cup, and I saw Portugal there. I saw Portugal, USA, and I saw England, Italy. So I saw four games. So I got that opportunity as well. I've been to Blue Jays playoff games. I remember my very first Buffalo Bill game. That was a huge experience for me. I remember walking to just outside Rich Stadium, and I was shocked by that the air smelt like beer. Um, <laughs> like I just, I never experienced that. You know, I'm in an outdoor stadium, and it, I just smelt the, the yeast from the beer just from being outside the stadium. Sounds good. A lot of good memories there. Some non-sports questions now. You have one last meal to eat on Earth. What are you having for your appetizer, main course, dessert, and drink? Uh, Coke Zero. Uh, dessert will be cheesecake. I'm going to go backwards. <laughs> Sushi will be the meal. And for the appetizer, probably just a salad. For your last meal, you're going to have a salad. I like it. What kind of salad? Well, it's appetizer. You know, it's, you're going to have sushi. And if you have sushi, you know you can't overfill. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's going to be all you can eat. <laughs> okay. There you you, go. Yeah. You can't have sushi if it's all you can eat. That is the appetizer. <laughs> there you go. So hopefully you're a music guy here. I'm going to give you a chance to put on a concert in your backyard. You can book any band or artist in the world, living or dead. You got to pick three and the order in which they play. All right. So I'm going to start with Mumford and Son as an opening act. I'm going to follow by Coldplay. And I'm going to close the show by one of the greatest bands of all time in U2. All right. U2. I I haven't heard about them in a while, but definitely some good songs or some classics. Well, it's, you know, it's, they've been around. It's pretty much the European version of the Rolling Stones, so we'll have them close the show. There you go. You'll bring all of Oshawa out there, it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> so, question five here. What's the best career advice you've ever received? I know you gave some advice earlier, but what's the best advice you ever received for being an agent? I don't know if I've received advice. A lot of times said doing it by yourself, you're giving your own advice. And what I tend to do is just build off life experiences, right? So just take every day and take it in and then 
just grow off it, you know, try and make tomorrow better than today. And that definitely uh, will feel your agency as well and the players that are in it. So last question here. I'm going to give you all the talent in the world and you got to tell me what position on what team and what sport would you be? Oh boy, that's going to be a tough one. But I would, I would always want to be, I would say a starting pitcher in baseball because I work every five days. I get to play in the summer. Yep. And I get to spend three or four days at a time in a city. So I can actually enjoy it, right? Where, you know, football players, you're in a day, you're out today, and you're practicing in the cold winter. So yeah, that would be my, uh, that would be my starting pitcher for that. Any uh, team, or you don't want to be uh, biased with that? Really, realistically, if I have the opportunity to play professional baseball, I would have to have to be a place that has an outdoor stadium. So not Tampa. I don't want to play in a dome, because not if I'm going to play in the heat... <laughs> Yeah. Right, it's not. It's going to be a disadvantage of playing in a dome. I want to play under the sun, so yeah. So it can't be a dome. Like the Jays are okay because the dome opens and closes, so that's that's all right. But I think Tampa is the only stadium right now that is a consistent dome. So anywhere but Tampa, and that's necessary just because it's Tampa, just because of the dome. There you go. If they maybe get an outdoor stadium, you might uh, transfer over there. Well, that was a funny thing you asked that question because back when we did our podcast, um, I asked my co-host, um, you know, if you're going to pick an an event in the Winter Olympics. Which event would you pick? And I always said I wanted to be the middle man of a four-man bobsled because you don't have to do anything; just turn left and right, right? So it'd be the easiest. Like he picked like sky, like ski jumping or something crazy and erratic. I'm like, no, like. <laughs> so you know, I remember him saying, "Still this day, Kale Orge." He's like, "So you're okay wanting to be in a leotard between two other men?" I'm like, "Hey, if it gets me, if it gets me a medal, just you know, just run, jump in, and then turn left and right into a little hot, into a little bathtub." That's funny because I actually had a person on the bobsled team for Canada and he's a brakeman. So it's kind of funny that you bring that up. Yeah, see, brakeman, you got work. And the middlemen, they're just wait. Like their job is just to wait on the sled. <laughs> so there you go. It's probably, you're going to say the easiest way to get a medal potentially if you're on the Canadian team. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty much out of all the Olympic sports. You know, what, what skill set you run, you jump and you sit and you turn in the right direction. All right, that sounds good. So, Derek, if our audience wants to find out more about you and what you do, where can they find you online? Our company website is LakeRidgeSportsManagement.com. Um, I'm very active on Twitter, at Derek Marquez. The agency has a Twitter account, uh, at LakeRidge or at LSM Sports Management. I don't know if one of our workers did that. Same thing with Instagram. And that's pretty much it. And now and again, you can find stories on me in, uh, in the newspaper or you may hear me on the radio. So that, anything can happen. And your article was featured in the Toronto Star, so if you have a chance to check that out, I'm going to attach that in the show description as well. So if you have a chance to check it out, I would re highly recommend that you get to learn a little bit more about Derek's story. So Derek, once again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the pod. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Andrew Masters, goaltender for the University of Guelph Griffins men's hockey team. Hear about his story about perseverance through junior hockey and his experience winning the Queen's Cup in 2020. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at one underscore and underscore only underscore sports and see some of my commentating highlights on YouTube at the channel one and only sports. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.